Well, tonight I'm speaking on the topic, Arise and Come Away. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's what some quarterbacks are going to be hoping to do tonight as well at some point, to come away from linebackers coming at them. But that's not what I'm focusing on. We are looking at Song of Solomon tonight. Chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. And we're going to be start read, starting at verse 10. And so here we go. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Whenever the Bible says something twice in short proximity, you know that it's being underlined, and it's done for emphasis. And that little phrase appears twice here, come away. And so if you have your Bible or a phone app, highlight that, because that is so important. Song of Solomon is also known as the Song of Songs. That is, in fact, the title that's given to it in the very first book of the Bible itself. If you were to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. In the book of Kings, it tells us that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs during his lifetime. But 1,004 of them didn't make it into the Bible. They didn't record it as this one is. And this is the only Song of Solomon's that made it into the Bible, hence the name, the Song of Songs. It's the greatest of his songs. It's the one that went double platinum. And this is the one that Solomon loved and obviously the people loved. And it's evidently the only song he ever wrote that was especially inspired by the Holy Spirit with the purpose of being included in God's word. It's probably also right to say that since he called it the Song of Songs, it was his personal favorite. It was his favorite song for his favorite bride. Now, when you read the Song of Solomon, and hopefully you have read it at some point, there are actually three different ways of interpreting the book. The one that's become most popular, I think, in our generation is actually the naturalistic way of interpreting the book. That is, you read the book and it's clearly a poetic book about a man and his lover, his bride. And so they say, that's what this is about. That's what this whole book is about. It's about marriage. It's about human love. And that's all that we should take out of it. It's a naturalistic expression of the Song of Solomon. Another way to look at it is as an allegory, an allegorical interpretation. And that means that these are all symbols that we're supposed to figure out what they mean. And it's got some great moral to it that we're supposed to draw out of it. And so that's the allegorical way. Then there's a typological way. Now, this is the one that's the most interesting, and we'll come back to it in a moment. But the typological interpretation of Song of Solomon means that in this Old Testament story, we find types for which which later on in the Bible, we will find anti-types. That is, there is a foreshadowing going on here of something that is to come. And so that's the typological. Now, 
That being said, you can forget all of these three words if you want, the naturalistic, the allegorical, and the typological. But I want you to understand why this book was written. Because generations of our Christian forefathers, the church fathers way back in the first few centuries, the reformers, the 16th and 17th century, the Puritans, right up until fairly recently, in fact, they saw in this book a picture of Jesus and his church. And that this is typological. And it points forward to Jesus Christ. That is not merely allegor, an allegory. And so when you read the Song of Solomon, you read about a historical person, King Solomon, and his love for a young woman of a particular family background. She's called a Shulamite in this book. And she's from, obviously, the Shulamite tribe. And that it's set against a backdrop of real places like Damascus, in Gedi, and Mount Hermon. And so these are real places that existed in King Solomon's time. And so this is history. It's not a made-up story. This is talking about something that really happened. But those from long ago very clearly saw it as typology as well. It has a similar meaning as a human love story, but it also speaks of something far greater. Solomon had his wife in mind as he wrote it but the Holy Spirit included it in the scriptures to speak to us of a greater marriage, the great king of kings and his bride, the great romance, Jesus and his church. And so now that idea has been challenged a lot in recent times. Some people, as I said, see it only as a book extolling marital love, showing God's approval of intimacy and romance in our marriages, that he desires to be an essential part of of that normal human union. And I don't dispute that that is here in this book, because Solomon was thinking of his relationship with his bride as he wrote it. But I am certain that we have to take a step back and see what the ancients saw. The Song of Solomon speaks to us of Jesus. It's a love story that reveals the depths of Christ's love and his desire for his church, the bride. His bride. The Bible uses this anal- analogy. Oh my goodness. That's a word that you're going to ha- find me having a problem with. Of God. His people is a, in a marital union in a whole bunch of places. See, in the Old Testament, prophets spoke of Israel as the wife of God. Their calling as preachers was to, for Israel to come back from worshiping idols. And they called it spiritual adultery. And for Israel to devote themselves to their faithful husband, Yahweh. And then you come across the New Testament and you read in Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says very plainly, marriage is a picture of Christ's union with the church. See, this is what marriage is meant to be in the theater of the world, where God is telling the story of, of his love for mankind. And then you go right to the very end of the Bible, to the last book, the book of Revelation. And John tells us what's coming. So what's coming? The marriage supper. The great marriage supper of the Lamb. And one day very soon, every believer in Jesus will be summoned to that great banquet. The church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and will go to that wedding celebration. The bride adorned and ready for her husband. And so marriage, human love, is a reflection of God's love. And another reason for us to see the Song of Solomon as a picture of Christ and his church 
simply this. Jesus is revealed in every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He's revealed in types and pictures and prophecies. In fact, he's the key to the whole of scriptures. Jesus unlocks it all. And if you want proof of this, you might remember that seven-mile Bible study that Jesus had after he had risen from the dead. In fact, the very day that he rose from the dead, he was walking along the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. And it says in Luke 24, 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning, concerning himself. And I believe that text is letting us know that you can find Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. Jesus was able to expound all of the Old Testament scriptures and talk about himself in them. Therefore, like every other book of the Old Testament, you should expect to meet Jesus in the Song of Solomon, and that's what we find. So what does the book actually say? Well, let me give you a little overview of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a poem consisting of the reminiscences of King Solomon and his bride. And the first question you should ask yourself is, which one? You might recall that King Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. So you think, which one was this written for? A lot of scholars have suggested that it was written for his first wife, the wife of his youth, as the Bible describes your, your wife when you first got married. Many think of it as a one, young woman by the name of Abishag. And it's possible that this is who it's referring to. Abishag was actually uh, the, not so much the concubine, but she kept King David's bed warm for him when he was old, but there was never any marital union between them or any sexual union between that. And so they do think that King David betrothed Abishag to King Solomon. But her name is never revealed in the Song of Solomon, so it's really just speculation that this is who he's talking about. What we do know is that the Song of Solomon is a love story between King Solomon and his first love. And what happens in the poem is that the two characters, Solomon and his lover, think back over their meeting and their courtship and their marriage. See, this girl was from a very poor family in Ephraim. And from the descriptions we have of her, she seems to have been what you might call the Cinderella of the family. I like to think of Song of Solomon that way. It's the Cinderella story of the Bible. She was naturally beautiful, but she was very much unnoticed. She was not given the privileges of other rich girls. And in fact, she was made to work hard tending the vines in the vineyard, which meant that she had very little time to care for her own personal appearance. The scholars go on to say that the description is that of someone working in the sun that had made her dark and tanned. You know, these days, that's really great. I mean, everybody wants a good tan. You know, you go away, sit in the sun. They've got places you can go and sit under lights and get a tan. You can even get one sprayed on if you want. But these days, that's the way. People go to the tanning centers to get that look. But in the old Near Eastern culture, a tan was not considered desirable because most people were tanned. And so girls from wealthy families didn't work out in the fields. They kept a fair complexion, and that became the fashion of the day right up until about two, 300 years ago. See, this Shulamite girl was not one of Jerusalem's front cover models of Vogue magazine. 
She didn't see herself as beautiful. She thought of herself as plain. But one day she met a handsome young shepherd. And spoiler alert, it's actually King Solomon in disguise. She thinks he's just a shepherd because he's dressed plainly. And that particular day when, Sol- when Solomon saw the Shulamite girl and she saw Solomon, it was love at first sight for both of them. We then read in the poem about how their love relationship is taken up and how they bond in courtship and how they grow in love toward one another. But all of a sudden, after they're bonded in such a close court, courting relationship, this young Shulamite says to the, this young shepherd, sorry, says to the Shulamite, I have to go away. I'm going away. But if I go away, I will come to you again. And after an extended absence, he finally did return. Not as a humble shepherd this time, but when he appears, he's in the grandeur of the great king. And Solomon takes her back to his palace in Jerusalem as his bride. Do I even have to point out the typology here? It's kind of obvious. Our shepherd king Jesus, the Lord is my shepherd. He has come to us in such, a, in such poverty and meanness. He came into the world that he created, and the world didn't even know him. The Bible says, though he was rich, though he was a king, yet he became poor. Why? So that through his poverty, we might be made rich. He came from the splendors of glory to woo and to win, to buy with his own blood a bride for himself. And then he had to go away. But he said, if I go away, I will come again and receive you to myself. And how many know that he's going to look a whole lot different when he comes the second time in all of his glory? See, that brings us right back to where we are living our lives today. We are in the period between him leaving and him coming again. Jesus is coming again, and when he does, he's not coming incognito. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, and everyone will know him. And he's coming in all of his kingly majesty. And what an incredible book the Song of Solomon is. It's so intimate and powerful in its language about the love that God has for his people and the plan that he has instigated. And as I read through the Song of Solomon, one recurring phrase captures my heart, and I pointed it out in the reading. The king, the beloved, speaks to his bride and says to her, Come away. It's repeated twice here in this verse that we read, verses 10 and verse 13. And it's also in similar language in chapter 4, verse verse 8, that says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me. And this is the burden of my message this evening. The Lord's call to us, his church, to every individual Christian on the eve of his return. He's coming quickly. The signs show us that his coming is imminent, and he is calling us all, as always, come away. So much in that call, so much in his voice as he says that, and I perceive three things that I want to draw out to you right now. And the first thing is this, there is intimacy in his voice. Listen to how he addresses his bride. My love, my beautiful one. Guys, in a few days, it's Valentine's Day. Part of the reason why I'm also speaking on Song of Solomon. Be ready. You should have intimacy in your voice on Wednesday. See, Solomon is speaking to his Shulamite bride. 
but it's also God speaking to his church, my love, my beautiful one. And it reveals to us a couple of things. First of all, his feeling for us, my love. God loves his church. God loves the whole world so much that he gave his only son to redeem back a people for himself. And then all of his love is poured out on that people. And he loves us. Secondly, it's his view of us. My beautiful one. Over in chapter 4, verse 7, we read this again. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. There's no stain. There's no flaw. There's no blemish. And that is not how we see ourselves, though, is it? Because we know where we came from. We know what we are capable of. We know our sinful past. Everything that we wish we could forget. And we continue to live with this present weakness. Our proneness to falling. And we would have to admit, we failed God on a weekly basis. But that might be too long. Maybe we failed him on a daily basis. Some might even think, I fail him on an hourly basis. We fail him. And so we don't see ourselves with, as with no stain, no flaw, no blemish. And how is it that God sees us that way? His beautiful one with no spot. Well, only grace can do that. Because grace found a way through the blood of Jesus Christ. And only Jesus' righteousness, his perfection can cover us to make us right in God's sight. The power of Jesus' blood washed us, cleansed us, healed us, and delivered us so that God can look at us in the midst of all of his fallenness, all of our fallenness, and see the perfection, the obedience, the beauty of his own son and say, my beautiful one. And so know this, you are a beautiful, you are a beautiful sight in God's eyes when you are a follower of Christ. And just as God spoke to Jesus on the river Jordan and said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he looks at you and says the same. He shouldn't, but he can because of what he's done giving his son in our place. We're no longer seen by God as the sinners that we have been by nature. We are the bride. The bridegroom's own loveliness shines on us. We are dressed in his royal robes. And the Bible says right here in the Song of Solomon, he brought me into his banqueting house and his banner over me is love. He brought us into fellowship with himself. And what a marriage supper that's going to be. So let me ask you, do you have your ticket? It's coming right up. What a marriage supper. When we sit, Jesus will be at the head of the table and all of us gather around and we will know his perfect love that we've only had glimpses of in this lifetime. Now, don't get to thinking of yourself though. Well, like, well, really, we must have been beautiful all along. Look how good I am. We just didn't know it. I just need a little bit of makeup. No. Romans 5 tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The lover came for us when we were completely unlovely. Sin had disfigured us and made us so abhorrent to a holy God. Every vile thing we had done, every act of rebellion screamed out for him to justly reject us. But he loved us anyway. 
There's an old Andre Crouch song that said, he looked beyond my fault and saw my need. And he loved me. 1 John 4.19 says, we love him because he first loved us. You say you love the Lord this evening, and I say this, it's a reflex. Because he loves you first, you love him back. He started this. The world really does have a pathetic idea of love, though. Love in the world today is so fickle and so fleeting. People talk about falling in love like they talk about coming down with the flu. And just as quickly as you fell in love, you can fall out of love again. But God's definition of love in the Bible is something completely different to that. And right here in Song of Solomon, he talks about it. If you go to chapter 8 and verse 7, it says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. See, not all of the rising tide of men's collective sin and rebellion could quench or douse the fire of God's love for us. Because his love cannot be overcome. It never changes. It never diminishes. It's as hot today as it's ever been. And this is who God is. His very nature is love. And the Bible says God is love. But it's not just saying that God is some emotion that we feel. I've heard people say that. That whenever we experience love in our lives, that's God. They say that's what we speak of as God. Just the love that we feel in our lives. And I say that's rubbish. That is a sentimental nonsense. God is a real person, and he has revealed himself as having a nature that is all of love. And that's what it means when, he, when it says God is love. It's his core attribute. If you continue reading verse 7, it says in chapter 8, If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Two more recent poets, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, said, You can't buy me love. You can't. There's no price you can put on love. Love is impossible to purchase with anything. It's only a gift. True love is not for sale. God's love is not for sale. And if it had been up to us to propose a purchase price to gain God's love for us, no price would have been enough. You can't even buy love from another person. You might buy companionship. You might buy friendship. But you can't buy anyone's love. And so there's intimacy in his voice. My love. He says, my beautiful one. But there's something else. There's jealousy in his voice. Because he says those words we've been pointing to. Come away. The beloved calls his bride away to be with him alone. To be exclusively his away from others, away from the world, away from other suitors who would come calling for her. He wants her all for himself. And now when we hear the word jealousy, we might wince because the word jealousy has taken on only negative connotations. It's so often spoken of today as a bad thing. Oh, they're such a jealous person. You should never be jealous. That's an ugly thing we're told. But the Bible shows that there is a godly jealousy. There's a right jealousy. If a man truly loves his wife and you seek to intrude on her, let me assure you, you're going to feel the full brunt of her husband. 
And I put it to you that that's a godly thing. St. Augustine said, he that is not jealous is not in love. But I'm not speaking of a cruel possessiveness that demands, that sometimes poses for jealousy. That's just superficial, and it's very unloving. It's all demanding and overbearing. And it doesn't come from love at all, but but from selfishness. Proverbs says that kind of jealousy that's overbearing and selfish, it's rottenness to the bones. It's a kind of cancer that will eat you up and destroy your relationship, even while you're clutching onto it and trying to control the other person. The Bible speaks of the sin of idolatry as a kind of spiritual adultery. Unfaithfulness to the only true God who deserves to occupy the throne of our hearts and receive all of our worship. God created us for himself. And this is where all of history is headed towards the day when we will finally and eternally be reunited with him. To have no other gods, no other loves, and to be with him forever, the beloved and his bride. And Jesus expressed this out of his own mouth. In fact, he did it on the very night that he went to give his life for us. John 17, 24, Jesus is praying. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God, my Father, I want these disciples, I want everyone who will follow them to come to our house and experience the love that we have had for eternity and for us to enjoy it forever and ever. Father, do that quickly. That's what he's saying. And it's the express heart of God to have us with him. He said so in John 14, as he's talking to the disciples. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I, have not, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And so it's the love of God and his desire to have us with himself. Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, it's coming, it's going to happen. In verse 17, he says, We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And we get this thinking that when we think Jesus is coming, we thank God that we're going to get away from all of these problems. But that's not Paul's focus here. It's not about escaping the problems. It's about being with the Lord. It's about finally fulfilling the plan of of all of his desire for us. His family to be in his house. And so thus we will always be with the Lord. And it's no wonder John finishes Revelation and and says, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Take your your waiting people home. And I hope that that thought thrills you above everything else in life this evening. For some people, the thought of Jesus coming quickly, it fills them with dread, fear, disappointment. Lord, don't come back just yet. 
I still have things I want to do, things I want to achieve. How many of you remember being a teenager and thinking, Lord, don't come back. I just want to get married. I just want to have a job first. I want to get some money. I want to drive a Mustang. I want this first. I want that first. Whatever it is that you got your heart set on, if that remains your thought as a Christian, just a little bit longer, Lord, just a little bit longer because I'm joining these things here. To me, something is terribly wrong. And that's one of the great problems in the world church today. We are more in love with the world than we are with Jesus. Our hearts are divided. King David said, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. But our hearts are not united. They're divided between God and the world. You see it in a thousand ways. How we think, where we go, what we watch, who we emulate, who we're trying to impress, who we're trying to be popular with, what excites us, what stimulates us. All of these things become our focus. It's other loves. It's idolatry. Because it's not God alone that has our focus. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Therefore, come out. Doesn't that kind of sound like Song of Solomon? Come away. Paul says, Therefore, come out from among these, among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You hear the jealousy of God in these words. Come away. Come away with me, my love, my beautiful one. He loves you and paid for you and cares for you and wants you for himself. So how do we show our love to God? It's quite simple. Obedience. And this is what Jesus says in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's the ultimate demonstration of the reality of our love, is that you obey what he has said. A love affair with Jesus will not occupy you for a couple of hours on Sunday, but it will engage every desire of your heart continuously day by day with all that you have in you in obedience to him. Lastly, and I'm wrapping up very quickly with this, there is urgency in his voice. Because he says, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Rise up. God calls to us with urgency because our time is so short. We're living in a generation that I believe our time is short on this planet completely. I think many of you would agree that this planet really can't go on much longer. We're surely coming to all of the promises that were made at the end of the Bible. But even for our grandparents, our great-grandparents, people who died centuries ago, the time is always short for human beings. Because when you're 18 years of age, it feels like you've got forever. But when you hit 54, um, you think to yourself, there's not much time left. You look back and think, where did that go? And you realize life is so short. There's urgency in God's voice because the bridegroom is coming for every one of us. And he's coming for a prepared bride. And very soon his call is going to be, come away. And it's going to be the final call. And we will all be caught up to meet him, the Lord, in the air. And so his spirit says to us today, 
Are you ready for Jesus? Is your lamp trimmed? Are you watching? The clear implication is, if you're not watching, you may miss his coming. Jesus said, many will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did these great things in your name. We did all this stuff in your name. But notice they have the lingo, Lord, Lord. They can speak churchianity. But he will say to them, I never knew you. It's the relationship that he's jealous for. I never knew you. And the Apostle John says this, everyone who thus hopes in him, the hope of Jesus' return, the fact that Jesus is coming at any moment, John says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, gets himself ready like the bride getting ready for the groom, and is pure. So it's not just urgency because he's coming soon, but he's urgent for you to get your whole heart, give your whole heart to him. Because another may steal your affections of your heart if you linger. If you don't give anything to God today, you may find your affections are stolen by another. So arise and come away. It's a command. Christ, our head, speaks with the authority and says, come away. And the onus is on us to rise up from slumber, from every entanglement with this world, to come away for Christ alone. We're still in the world. We're still going to go to work tomorrow morning. But where's your heart going to be? Jesus said we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We have a different mindset. We consider ourselves citizens of another kingdom, and we live accordingly. And the fact is, as we look at the church today, others have stolen our affections away. I don't hear just urgency in God's voice today. I hear grief in his voice about Jesus' church being caught up with so many other things. And so let's finish with this. Revelation 19, 7 to 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Let's pray.